So this is Application Paranoia, Season 3, Episode 1. So welcome again to Application Paranoia, our podcast dedicated to secure DevOps, AppScan, and all things interesting. Um, joining me as always are my wonderful colleagues, Rob Cuddy and Chris Stewart. So Rob, how are you? Good. What, have you, what have you been doing since we last spoke, which was way back in December? I always look forward to what adjective you're going to use to describe us too. So that's always fun. Um, it's been busy, you know, it's been a lot of good, a lot of great stuff going on. Um, a lot of looking at trends and tendencies and we got a lot to talk about in season three. So I'm excited about that. Um, but you know, it's been interesting is noticing all of the, the, the losses too. Like, you know, here in the States, right. A lot of people were affected by Betty White passing and Sidney Potier and meatloaf and stuff like that. And, and, um, what was interesting was the day right before, Meatloaf passed, I, I saw this flow chart that I thought was hilarious where um, the question was asking, are you Meatloaf? And the, the, the top part said, would you do anything for love? And then it split into almost anything and I would. Then it came back together asking, but what about that? And on the left side of the flow chart, it says, I can't go for that, no can do. And the answer is, you're Hall and Oates. And on the right side, it says, I won't, and you're Meatloaf. And I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> No, so, so, so there's there's an amazing meatloaf story from a concert he did in Moat, which is a town in West Meath. Oh, there you I, go. I, I, you can't even go into it in any detail. It's worth looking up. But mm. basically it involves a, a wheelchair flying across the audience and landing <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> basically okay. the audience didn't like him, you know, and they oh, were wow. throwing things at him, you know. So, oh, a wow. wheelchair became like a water balloon. <laughs> It's it's so worth looking up and reading. It's the funniest wow. article, you know. Oh. Yeah. You know, people may forget efficient item we can to throw at somebody. This'll do. Yeah. Well, and he was um he was a contestant on The Apprentice once, you know, one of those celebrity things. And so it was interesting seeing him in that light. So yeah, but it's just it's been interesting to see how much, you know, iconic figures have passed over the last couple months and and seeing that and so um it's always that that dichotomy right of, of new stuff happening and stuff passing so so yeah there's just been a lot of that going on so it has it has and chris how are you i'm good i'm good i had my uh two-week vacation at the end of the year that's always Ooh. nice to have where you don't yes. do anything and just go out and have fun i guess yes yeah we uh Speaking of iconic, we got to open um, one of the most iconic disc golf courses in, in the U.S. and some would argue the world, Maple Hill in Worcester, Mass. We spent the night there in Worcester, which was fun for us. But, you know, it's like Worcester. The view from our hotel was like a factory. <laughs> but it didn't matter. Don't care. I wanted a factory view, so that worked out. But, yeah. No, we got to open the course. It was, it was super cool. Snow everywhere. Ice everywhere. It was it was. It was a good time. Nice. I guess you. I, I guess you can throw frisbees in the snow, can't you? Yes. Yeah, you can, Colin, but they're not called frisbees. <laughs> Most band-aids are called band-aids. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how much of that two-week vacation was spent looking for discs that were in the snow? Ironically, not very much. Um, yeah, to prepare for this tournament, I lost three. <laughs> at the tournament, I lost zero. Nice. I like how you prepare by losing. That's yeah. awesome. You're like, well, let's just throw new discs at the tournament, I guess. <laughs> well, it's okay. If you wait a few months, I'm sure you'll oh. be able to find them easily. Yeah, no, it gets better. I lost all three of them on the same hole. Oh, dude. That's not good. <laughs> like, that was a terrible shot. Let me practice another that's one. That's not that good. That's a terrible that's shot. A... Let me practice another one. Right? That's like Kevin Cosner in Tin Cup, right? At the very yeah, end. Like, that's uh... Give me another ball. Like, does <laughs> disc golf have caddies? No, it, it definitely. Well, it does if you're, you know, you're important enough, but not, not at my level. It turns out I don't have a whole lot of people wanting to follow me around, watching oh me lose three discs on one hole. No, but think how amazing it would be to have like a 15-year-old with this strap-on contraption behind that has like a, a stack of discs, and you just pull from the bottom. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, give me the big That's one, right? What the pros do? One of the pros has a caddy that dresses in golf caddy clothes, which is oh my awesome, gosh. <laughs> with her name on the back and everything. 
do they have yeah. the little eyepiece things too to like measure distance to the chain? They do, <laughs> you know, like four hundred and fifty <laughs> yards. They absolutely do. Yeah, this no, is a five day. Oh, you have equipment nowadays. Oh man, it's it's no longer a pedestrian sport. It's there's some big money rolling into that one. <laughs> We're gonna have to dedicate an episode to disc golf and <laughs> that'd be great. And just tie everything into it. That would be hilarious. Oh, oh I've man. been since day one. One of those Sorry. ESPN sports science things on the throw. You know, I wonder yeah. we should have for Conrad. That would have been pretty amazing. Yeah. Sounds like a point zero 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 three seven percent chance of succeeding. So we're we're starting with a guest this week. So um you know, we're, we're very excited about that, um, and we'll we'll introduce him in a, in a minute when we. Um, but um, really excited. We want to talk a little bit about Log4j and that and that um, thing as well, because that's something that's been, I guess, pounding us a little bit in in the the first months of the year and the end of last year. So um, I'm sure that's affected any everyone somewhere. So yep. um, so we'll have a good discussion about that. And the, the plan is to continue much much the same, I guess, this year. But we we will we will probably try to be a little bit more diverse and do a little bit more towards the the secure DevOps side, um, not for obvious reasons. But we but we we also want to embrace you know everything that's application security, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've got some very excited confirmed guests that we'll be talking to later this season. So it's yeah. it's going to be very cool. I'm looking yeah. forward to some of the conversations. And who knows? Who knows? Fingers crossed, we might actually be able to do one of these in person. Who knows? Ah, that'd be yes. awesome. Coming soon <laughs> to a conference near you. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, we are delighted today to have with us Hector Monsegur, who is an industry professional that has got decades of experience, um, but mostly on the offensive side. What's really cool is, is Hector was a former black hat, so at one time kind of the bad guy, um, what some may now call an adversary, um, but turned good and, and is now at the helm of several different um, groups and was part of a bunch of collectives with an emphasis on foreign governments. And um, turned his life around and is now helping the government and being able to help customers every day avoid attacks and understand uh, the different threat vectors that are coming in. Hector now serves as the director of research for Alacronet and spends most of his days working with clients to improve their overall security posture um, and working on things like offensive research and engagement. So we are delighted to have Hector with us. And Hector, we know um, recently there was a really big scenario kind of around Log4j. And so we're kind of curious, you know, maybe just to kick things off, what you think about that and uh, where, where we are and um, things of that nature. So how's it going and, and what's happened in your world because of all of these things? Hey guys, well, it's a pleasure being here. Um, I always, you know, always appreciate hanging out and having a great conversation about cybersecurity. Hmm. I've been an enthusiast for a long time, so it's always great to have these chats. Um, now, I would say Log4j is an interesting scenario, right? Um, I think it's a great question. Well, you know, where do we go from here? Well, before we get to that point, let's talk about how we got here. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so Log4j is very similar to a lot of the other open, open source projects out there or free software that exists out there that have been, um, you know, heavily relied upon or relied upon by a lot of major applications. You know, if you open up an Android app and you go into like, you know, licenses, you see a ton of licenses for a bunch of software you've never heard of. Yep. And when you start to dig into these software, you find that many of them are extremely dormant or dormant, or they just have maybe one or two maintainers. Maybe Apache has picked them up. Um, and Apache does a, a, a decent job as best as they can to keep these projects going. I mean, another good example would be like, um, Apache had picked up a project called Axis or Access 2, mm -hmm. um, which many of you may have heard at some point or have interacted with at some point in your, in your lives. But the reality is that that project is like 15 years old plus. It's dormant. I think it has one maintainer at this point. So what happens when a project like that, that is used by a lot of major applications, um, is found to be vulnerable to so some sort of zero day or vulnerability in general? Um, you know, how long before that gets fixed um, or is even reported to the to the to the vendor, in this case, Apache. Right. Um, now, what if the open source project is not maintained by an organization like Apache? Um, then what happens then? Right. That's that's a major issue. 
Log4j in this case, I mean, extremely important library used by probably thousands of, of you know, applications around the world. It is, a, a I would say, a, a pretty common dependency for Java applications. It yeah. has, what, five maintainers, um, but they're all volunteers. Um, you know, that, that's problematic. I, th I think that it's, it's fantastic that open source has taken us this far. Um, I think the question is, at least for me, as someone that, you know, loves security and loves software and all that good stuff, and I'm a nerd at heart, um, how do we deal with this moving forward? What happens 10 years from now when nobody wants to volunteer to maintain Log4j and it's still a major dependency? Right. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I, I feel like it is a supply chain issue that we're always going to have, we're always going to have to deal with. Yeah, um, and, it, and it's funny yeah. too because, um, you know, I'm starting to see the trickle down. So you have like um, folks who built applications that were dependent on it, um, but in, in an open source fashion, right? And they're getting emails from, you know, different vendors or clients that are saying, hey, you know, our, our legal team is uh, demanding that you tell us, you know, what you're going to do about this within 24 hours, or <laughs> what are your plans to mitigate, right? And it's, you know, it's an open source project. And, um, you know, it's funny, right? Because you see the responses on, on things like Twitter, and mm -hmm. it's everything from panic to, well, I'll be happy to talk to you once we put a support contract in place, right? Or things like that. So, so it's yeah. really interesting, the dynamic that's going on with, um, you know, how much do you depend on these things? And, and what do you do to help kind of, I guess, prevent some of these kinds of things from happening in the future? So it's, I think it's a fascinating mm -hmm. space. Oh yeah. Well, it is a, it's a solid conversation to have. Like I look at, um, I have many friends at VMware, so it's not a critique of VMware, but VMware has a lot of great products and some of their products rely on log4j. So when the issue came out, um, you know, VMware released their security advisories and so on. But now the question is you can start, you can have a debate about this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, part of the noise, but you can have a debate on this. It's like, well, these are these are billion dollar corporations that are relying on you know this unmaintained or maintained but with volunteers um, open source project. And what are they going to do to fund some sort of maintenance for projects like that? Now it becomes complicated because Log4j is just one small cog in the entire you know infrastructure. There's probably thousands of others um, that exist. So would, would that mean that? Now, someone like a company like VMware would have to start to maintain or put money into the maintenance of every single dependency they're using. Um, again, it, it's a great conversation to have. I think that you know we need we need leaders in the open source community to really touch on this and kind of figure out what can be done about it. Yeah, yeah, you know it's funny, right? That there was a uh, some kind of consortium, I think, you know, for lack of a better word, right? Done with the White House. Um, something like what a week week and a half ago right where they brought in uh industry leaders and thought leaders for discussing just this space this you know what are we going to do in open source and how do we get standards around it and there's things like the open ssf you know foundation that are uh, out there um, you can find them on github that have been trying to come up with you know some rules of engagement if you will around the open source space so it's gonna be really interesting to see where this evolves to Oh, yeah. Yeah. One thing um, I've always uh, been curious about or, or thought about is open source. This whole zero day problem with open source isn't going anywhere anytime soon, no matter how much money you throw at it, no matter how, no matter how many people you get to you know, support it, like you're saying, um, to actually put dollars into, say, Log4j instead of volunteer hours. Um, but from the other side of it, from people consuming it, what are some of the things that we need to be concerned with or that we should be concerned with if we rely on, say, one Maven import that pulls in 50 other things? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, that's that's a major problem, right? We, we we end up in dependency hell. That's that's kind of what yeah. I, I, I remember. That was a yeah, that was a term. <laughs> that was a term that uh, that, I, that I remember people used to use when. Back when Debian, you know, when Debian first came out or Debian was, you know, starting to, you know, to catch uh, a lot of traction and folks were learning to use AppGet or the App Package Management System and they would install one application, maybe a custom application, and then they would try to do an upgrade and Debian's APT or Apps uh, Package Management Manager would kind of break because you would run into dependency hell. Um, <laughs> Now, now, not so much. Uh, Debian and, and Ubuntu and all these different um, um, 
uh, distribution uh, groups have, you know, really improved that package manager. But I mean, that's that to me, that was just like such a reality check when my server just broke randomly when I'm trying to upgrade an, uh, an application. We're going to have the same problem with dependencies. Um, as, mm. as we move forward, um, again, I, I gave an example earlier of Access, Apache Access. That, that is a, a, a package that's 15 plus years, 10 plus years. And I think that Access 1 doesn't even have a maintainer anymore, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I, and I, the reason why I know this specifically is because one of my colleagues, um, Dwight Holmstein, a fantastic researcher, I think he's at Spectrops now, he had identified an issue with Access, and he had a lot of trouble trying to get it fixed before he did his 90-day uh, disclosure. So, um, yeah, this, it's definitely a problem that we're going to see more and more moving forward, and I think Log4j is just the beginning. Yeah, so, so in, 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 in relation to, to Log4j, I mean, we were, I guess we were a part of the the panic that, that I think a lot of organizations went through for identifying bit. where it is in, in their in their dependencies where it's used and that is is there any sort of advice on maybe some of the best approaches to sort of you know sort of mitigate these sorts of issues when, once they arise you know i mean that, that's hard that's such a hard question to deal with because okay so let's say that you know we are an enterprise us four okay mm -hmm. um we have a solid you know uh, mature <laughs> security um program we have all sorts of products we have all sorts of sims and logging and all that and we've done a very good solid job to get us to this point we're we've been very confident um our pen tests are coming back you know pretty pretty normal nothing crazy okay cool we have asset management we have all these policies and then it just so happens that one of the enterprise applications that we're using there we're that we have to use for some project or another comes back with a log4j incident um, well, how do we deal with that? Well, <clears throat> depending on the vendor, um, you know, we're kind of reliant on that vendor to kind of figure that out. Uh, how can we really deal with a problem that's really out of our hands, right? We could make the decision to shut down that device or shut down that application. How is that going to impact the rest of the organization? I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's complicated to deal with, especially when it's something that's out of your hands, when it's a supply chain issue that um that you know you really can't control unless you you know you kind of just disconnect mm -hmm. yeah um so it's 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 a hard question to deal with when it comes up and i'm sure there were a lot of security professionals CISOs, and security engineers that had to like have this exact same conversation well what do we do are we just going to shut this thing it, down it, from, yeah. from our from our perspective it, it, it became a lot more than just fixing the problem it became a thing oh, around yeah. how, how to communicate that to customers how to make sure that they they knew that you know what what we were providing was was suitable, and then on the other hand of that, we also had you know can we use your software to to help identify it? You know, so we we're dealing with like two different sort of spectrums. You know, it's, right. I was just wondering if, if you mm -hmm. had similar sorts of experiences around that. It's it you know it, it really challenged mm -hmm. I think disaster recovery to a certain degree and and contingency planning and a whole lot of things you know so not 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 just software right. oh yeah well I mean it, it's a great question so for on the offensive side that's that's kind of my my position on the offensive side I don't get to hear any of those conversations right I don't I don't <laughs> get to hear any of those points by the time by the kind by the time the client has a conversation with me about like hey we may or may not have a log J4 problem. Can you and your team identify that? Can yeah. you see, can you see if we passed it correctly? Right. Um, here's the scope that we're providing you. Um, good luck. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and, and, and on my end, oh, my yeah. team and I, we have to one, identify live assets, right? Usually on the web application side. Okay, cool. Now we're looking for web servers or all sorts of ports. Um, now we're looking for applications. Um, can we can we get a callback, a JNDI callback, or right. a callback to our LDAP server that's listening, waiting for that that callback? Um, if we get the callback, is it um, an actual log4j instance, or is it just oh. the application making a DNS request? Um, so, or a network that has you know seven thousand live assets right now. In fact, I was doing that last night. Um, out of seven thousand live assets, we kind of did you know. 
like the password spray of 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 log4j identification basically which is we're sending out uh, a ton of requests to all these web servers with like uh, uh a gnda headers right yeah. or or perimeters or whatever out of the six thousand something you know live assets we got two ips back they had a response to our callback oh wow now that's not an indicator that they fixed the the, the problem with most of their systems it's just an indicator that those two systems um, made some sort of DNS query or some sort of callback to our machine. It could mean anything. Right. In order for us to find, you know, a log4j uh, vulnerability on any of these applications, now it has to be, you know, more thorough. Can we hit the API? Do they have an API? Is there a login page? Um, how deep-seated is this issue in their application? So now it goes beyond just like an internal pen test. Now we're doing web application, you know, penetration testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the offensive side, or, or rather on the offensive side, it's a it's a, it's a complex issue, um, especially if the client doesn't even know whether they're vulnerable or not, or where to look. Right. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about: um, we seem to have a lot of trust in these open source free pieces of software, especially if it comes from Apache, you have a certain level of trust that you give these open source packages. And we have a lot of zero days that happen in the open source land. Um, so I'm curious, what kinds of things do you look for um, when you're saying, I want to onboard a new third party, you know, project? Uh, is it, you know, active developer count? Is it who maintains this? Is it, is there any actual dollars being thrown at this package? I mean, is it more beyond just what is the license? Can I use this thing? And does it do what I need it to do? And should we be asking more of those questions? And if so, what do you think they should be? Well, I'll tell you, you know, Chris, that's, that's a really good question because, you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure what a lot of clients or a lot of organizations are doing when it comes to that. Um, if they have to use a dependency, if a developer decides to use a dependency, let's say they decide to use log4j for dealing with their logs in the Java application. Okay. Is the developer communicating that with a DevOps sec team? Is there even a DevOps, uh, dev, a DevOps sec team in the first place? Um, does the developer or rather is the developer going to analyze, uh, analyze, um, you know, the GitHub repository, are they looking at the Apache pages? Are they looking at dates? Are they looking at active maintainers? And I'll be honest with you, Chris. I don't think so. I don't think in many cases. (laughs) (laughs) But that's something that um, I'm I'm curious because it's, you know, one of the things that we like to do is to make sure we're, you know, able to use the license. But as far as our can you use this, you know, tool goes, that's pretty much as far as we take it. And then developers themselves have to make the right choice. Does it solve the problem we need it to solve? Is it simple enough that it does the task correctly? Is it maintained at all? Um, So I'm curious what other people might be asking. Oh, yeah. Well, think about it like this. Um, you know, I, I think so. I, I think it brings us to a good point where when do we start to do like security awareness training with developers? Yep. Right? I'll be honest with you. This is my personal opinion. Obviously, since I, I've dealt with a lot of clients, I've dealt with a lot of developers because there, there are points when I find a, a, a vulnerability in a custom application. In, in, you know, during an internal engagement, for example, and I'm like, okay, so yeah, you may need to speak to the vendor to upgrade or update this or fix this or fix that. And the client comes back and say, oh, no, we're the vendor. We developed it. So I'm like, okay. Oh, dear. So can, can we, so you might can want we to talk to yourself? <laughs> so can we have, can we have a debrief with the developer then at that point? And I'll be honest with you, that's maybe happened one or twice, once or twice within my entire, um, you know, career here. Um, and so I, I can imagine how difficult that question is to deal with an answer. What are they doing on their ends? And the reality is, is they're probably not doing much. Now, that's on the internal network. Now, let's assume that um, we're dealing with a client that has a, a front-facing set of applications. It's all custom, it's all custom coded. Um, I'm sure that there's a bit more scrutiny, for sure. Um, but again, it still relies on your developers. Are, are they aware or they do have some some awareness in um, in dealing with with something like this. Do they even question whether or not uh, you know is it important that a a library is being maintained at all? A good example I'll give you here. I'm sure you guys read there was an article a couple of weeks ago. It was an incident actually. Um, there's a there's a developer who I, I believe uh, he owns or maintains Color.js. Have you guys remember? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Story? yeah, yeah. 
Okay, one person so, brought down the interwebs. Yeah. <laughs> one, one single person was able to cause that much disruption and that much impact. And so now the question for you is, and this is something this is a philosophical question, or not even, it's not even that. Um, so let's think about it. How many of the developers managers actually knew that those developers chose color.js for their library, uh, for their application? And the reality is probably not, not too many. Um, you know, it's, it, is, it is a complex problem, and I'm not really sure how we're going to solve it, but I think that uh, Rob made a reference earlier there, and there needs to be some sort of consortium or some sort of conversation around this that needs to take place. How do we deal with, especially if you're an enterprise, an organization, whatever, and you're doing some sort of development, um, you know, how, how in-depth are you in understanding what your developers are doing with your application? And, and what's the policy, if any? And are you guys rejecting uh, unmaintained libraries and dependencies, right? Yeah. Um, and if not, why not? And so, uh, and after that, there's a million other questions that pop up. Yeah. But you know, the thing I like about this so much, though, is, is this is moving beyond just software bill of materials, right? So, so much of the discussion I've seen here has been around, well, if you have a good software bill of materials, then, you know, you're, you're good, right? You know where the assets are, you know what you have to fix, that when these kinds of things happen. And and really, that that's just the tip of the spear, right? Is is kind of getting your arms around what you have. So what you're talking about is is so much more around overall health and, and that kind of thing. So it's you're right, it's a great discussion point and great conversation that we need to have. I love the approach, and this, this may not be relevant to this conversation exactly, <clears throat> but I love the approach that CISA is taking on, like ransomware, for example, or um, getting organizations or, or, or making organizations aware of vulnerabilities that need to be patched or remediated by a certain time. The CISA's vulnerability list is amazing. I'm not sure if you guys seen that. Um, mm. So it would be fantastic if CISA or a similar organization got involved and said, okay, we need to have a conversation around open source software, libraries, and dependencies. Um, and maybe, you know, let's work together as a community to kind of figure out um, you know, some sort of policy moving forward or some, some something, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not always for having government, you know, involved in all these things, but, uh, they've been definitely a leader in at least trying to get a conversation started around dealing with, you know, ransomware and so on. So, uh, somebody somewhere needs to step up. I know I'm not that person, <laughs> um, <laughs> but someone somewhere needs to step up and kind of, uh, try to figure out, okay, what's the next steps? What do we do with, with, a, with, with the next log 4J? Can we... Can we identify and mitigate that before it happens? Yeah, before the consequences are too dire. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, to, to, just to change it, change it up a bit, because I, I want to cover a couple of other things. I, I, you know, going way back to the early two thousands, I started a pen test team. Um, so I have a huge background in 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 that when tooling wasn't around. And have moved away from that. So I've been kind of curious um, that from from your perspective, because I know you're you're still quite involved in it. How has pen testing evolved in recent years, and you know how how do you see the future of that as we move forward? Yeah, that's fantastic, and I'm I'm glad you really brought that up. To be honest with you, um, you know, so I remember when pen testing was relatively simple. Let's go back to the early 2000s when. Yeah. There were a handful of security companies, right? You have that at remember at stake with Semantic purchased that, and then you had these other companies, and you had I know Trusted Sec has been around for a long time. Um, yeah, so you have a, a lot of companies that existed at the time. You had um, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of it was driven from companies like Ernst and Young and things like that, where who had real sort of advanced security centers, didn't it? Yeah, that that is kind mm -hmm. of era I remember, and it was real secret squirrel stuff in in glass yeah. rooms and yeah, yeah, it, it it was it was very much secret squirrel stuff, absolutely. And so from what I remember, a lot of a lot of it after those guys, because I know that there were some good teams. But a lot of a lot of what came after that, um, those initial companies were snake oil. So for a long time, <laughs> for a long time, right? And and this is why kind of laughs. <clears throat> the security industry was was a big flop because there's a lot of snake oil. You would hire a company and, and spend you know a hundred thousand dollars for for some sort of engagement, and it came back with like a, a free Nessus scan from back then or or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, yeah. or it was just not up to the standards that it is today. Um, so where, where are we today? 
now, like, you know, my team and I, we're engaging these clients, not only just to do a penetration test or vulnerability assessments um, or just a red team, right? There are differences to each one. Um, but we're looking at the overall security posture of the organization, how they're dealing with assets and asset management. Now that we're doing ransomware readiness assessment packages, um, you know, we're looking at their backup policies. So now there's questionnaires, um, there's assessments rather on that, on that front. Um, now when I've worked with other, other companies or I've seen other teams work, I've looked at a ton of reports. Okay. And I still kind of see a little snake oil there. I see a lot of automated stuff that really isn't good or the radiation steps aren't that great. Um, I think we've definitely improved as a community. I think the pen test is now way more aware, way more understanding of, you know, attack vectors and how to attack them. Um, I think we've improved a lot from the offensive research side. Absolutely. And we have great researchers like Tavis or Mandy and, and all these different people that are straight up geniuses. Right. Mm. Um, and they're putting out amazing, amazing research. Um, <clears throat> so I think, I think, you know, the, the pen testing part of it has improved. What I'm very concerned with is, um, and this is not a critique of my clients or, you know, the organizations in general, but I'm still seeing some of the common issues on an yeah. internal network, for example, <laughs> that we would have saw Colin 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. Um, there's no reason why if I get, if I'm doing an internal pen test, um, that there's NFS mounts still open, open to the network. Uh, NFS is, is should have been replaced by SMB shares by now. Um, there should be access controls in place, but I, I'm finding open NFS mounts uh, 20 years later, right? Yeah. Um, password management, uh, password reuse, still a problem internally. Um, RDP doesn't have MFA um, still in 2022, even though, you know, Duo and Okta and Microsoft have released MFA plugins for, for RDP, the protocol itself. Um, lateral movement through SMB is still a thing. Uh, yeah, Microsoft may have patched elements to pass the hash, but you can still do overpass the hash, or you can still do mm -hmm. lateral movement with servers that do not have SMB signing required or LDAP signing required. My point is, Colin, and the rest of the squad here, is that we've come a long way, but we still kind of are dealing with the core issues. A lot of it stemming from Windows environments. Um, a lot of these Windows environments have the full configurations that allow for a, a, a lot of serious issues to take place, uh, uh, um, vectors to be exploited. A good example would be if you were to, um, I'm not sure if you guys uh, follow the uh, the developer of Responder. Responder is a really good tool. Hmm. Um, I, I myself donate to um, to Prochetta Industries, which kind of maintains Responder, CrackMap Exec, and a couple other projects. Um, CrackMap exec right now, I'm oh, sorry, uh, responder right now as is gives you the capability to poison IPv6 requests, mm. MDNS requests, DHCP requests, LMNR, MBTNS, and um, whatever else. That's at least very, at least uh, five vectors on your network that uses um, broadcast protocols uh, to, to send out requests. And anybody on that network, regardless of privilege or authorization, um, can intercept and poison those requests. The fact that we're still seeing something like that in 2022 is insane. Um, you know, so what does that mean overall? It means that um, I think that, you know, in regards to like asset management and stuff and backup policies, we're getting better, but we're still stuck in the mid-2000s. Hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny because I'm sure Chris is dying to, to ask it. He asks the same question usually every podcast is, why is cross-site scripting still a thing? You know, it's like, here's your chance, Chris. <laughs> yeah, why is cross-site scripting still a thing for the love of all that's good and holy? Oh. Well, that's, that's, a, that's another great question, right? So cross-site scripting is, is as, as the listeners may know, is a, it's a vector that's been around 15 plus years or whatever, some, some outrageous number. Um, it still exists because developers are still not properly vetting um, input, right? There's no, there's no solid input validation still. Um, yeah. I think we got it better. I think I remember back in days when cross-site scripting as a vector first became a thing, and you could find them everywhere, right? Um, I, I think it's much more nuanced now because you also have to deal with not only are you dealing with developers who have become smart about validating input, 
but you also have browsers actively blocking um you know xss payloads and that's 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 awesome but it's still not resolved a good friend of mine brute logic adolfo on twitter mm. if you guys are not following him, he literally wrote the book on xss cross-site scripting um he has several books and publications on on all sorts of bypasses and circumventions of 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 browser-based mitigations and um, you know, brute logic. I love the guy. He's going to continue writing books until one day developers are like, "Goes away." <laughs> yeah, or we're not taking input anymore. <laughs> we need to figure out a better way to deal with this. Or all the input is fully validated all the time, right, and sanitized, and all of that. So, well, yeah. I mean, you know, and and to make a joke out of this, and, and Chris, I hope you enjoy this one. But you know, until. Uh, you know these uh, browsers start completely removing uh, alerts and <laughs> and prompt <laughs> and all these different functions um, <laughs> that would allow these like young researchers to find these bugs. But here's here's one cool thing about this, Chris. Okay, XSS is such an introductory vector to learn and study and practice that I promise you, almost every major bug bounty person that you find on HackerOne and Bug Crowd. And so on, I can almost guarantee they started learning um, cybersecurity or whatever because of XSS in some way, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I promise gateway vulnerability. So, in a way, XSS is kind of like the hello world for cybersecurity uh, researchers <laughs> coming into this. Um, but, but all jokes aside, why is it still a problem? How can we mitigate it? It all falls in the hands of developers. Browsers have been doing as best as they could on that, but um, yeah, it's, it's not going away. It's it's more. I I actually have some views. I think it's at a much more fundamental level, and it's it it's about education. And you know, I I, I hop back to when I was doing pen testing, and it was secret squirrel stuff. I I think the education of security has to come out of that and and get right across to. As soon as I start writing code, I know what security is about and we're seeing mm -hmm. some some aspects of that but i still think there's a million miles to go in in relation to a lot of that <laughs> well the fact that we have password issues is 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 problematic right yeah. um i know for a while microsoft was you know they had an agenda which is well let's phase out passwords altogether right i'm not sure where, i'm not sure where microsoft stands with that today i know it's been a, a it's been a talking point for them for a couple of years now. Well, let's just so, so to go more yeah. to biometrics and stuff like that, is it? Exactly. Yeah. Let's move yeah. to biometrics. Let's let's go, let's move to, um, you know, some sort of OTP with a pin. Yeah. And you know, you put your finger in the laptop and voila. The problem with that is that, and here's the problem with zero trust as well, because zero trust is a major topic. Yep. Um, as you know, the federal government is pushing zero trust. Yeah. Um, you know, and they're putting money into this. Yeah. I think cool. Buzan and Hamilton just wanted contracts to to be able to develop a a, a legitimate um, zero trust model or platform for the government. Right. Here's the problem with that. Right. I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, and, and I'm sure you guys know much more on your end because you're on the defensive side. But the reality is, is that uh, you can't really have a zero trust environment when you have a centralized environment. You you have Active Directory, which kind of defeats the purpose of a zero trust environment, for example, <laughs> yeah. if you're relying on protocols like SMB that are 20 years plus old, um, that still allow lateral movement to this day. Um, again, that's not going to allow for a zero trust environment because, uh, you know, there's still going to, there's still going to be a requirement for credentials. Now, if you read the requirements or the prerequisites that the U S government has, um, you know, set in motion in their, in their request for, um, I, I believe Booz Island Hamilton's, uh, projects, um, or or whatever is going to happen there. One of the things that you read, one of the points that you read, is that the the government still wants employees to have be able to rather they want they still want employees to be able to have access to whatever they need to have access to within you know um, within within their permissions. <clears throat> but what does that mean, right? What does that what does that really mean? Does that mean that you still want a centralized system for maintaining access, uh, or do you want to develop a new way of of authorizing requests to certain services. I mean, it gets convoluted and complex extremely quick. And it's the same way we're going to have discussions about this, uh, about XSS now, we're probably going to have zero trust deployment conversations 50 yeah. years from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating too, because it goes right back to the, the root of, you know, access and authorization and 
sometimes those get mixed, right? We, we assume if we have access to something, we should be able to do whatever we want when we get there. And there's a lot of things that are still coded that way. So, so yeah, this is going to continue to be, I think, a really interesting space. And if I remember right, I think Zero Trust was specifically called out by the executive order that came out last May, right? And that's correct. And pulled in. So, so it's absolutely going to be an issue. So, so I'm curious, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, um, this idea of training and equipping and, and getting folks up to speed. I'm curious, Hector, you know, we, we get the opportunity to work with students um, quite a bit, universities, um, as I've gone around, you know, I've noticed that a lot of universities are starting to have cybersecurity programs, but things like secure coding and these practices tend to be um, mandatory for a cybersecurity major and optional for everybody else who's touching code. I'm curious, what do you think we need to be doing to kind of raise up the next generation of talent or getting people into the space, um, helping to, to you know, get around some of the, uh, hey, this is an entry-level position that requires a CISSP problem, right, that we're, we're looking at. So um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, attracting student talent, encouraging it, building them up, that kind of thing, and, and putting us in a better position, you know, as, as we continue to move forward with these things. That is such a great question. I'm glad you asked it because I myself have done the best I could to do free speeches and, and, and meetups with university students or speaking for, you know, various university professors hit me up. Hey, we'd like to speak to my class for an hour. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I have some very strong opinions on this. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I, I feel that, you know, cybersecurity awareness should start much earlier. There's no reason why someone who's 17 or 18 and just walking in. So they've been on Instagram the last five years. Exactly. <laughs> and they're still for, falling for phishing because they have no idea what phishing is. And then they're they're getting a cybersecurity pro, um, you know, master's or rather a, a, a degree. Um, and they're just walking into it. They're just, they're just understanding and learning these concepts for the first time. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that a lot of students that are coming out of college or the universities with some sort of cyber program on their, on their, on their record, um, you know, they, they're, they're not prepared for cybersecurity work. Right. That's, that's, that's the first issue, right? The second issue, I mean, you have to sit down and look at some of the curriculum, Rob, some of the curriculum is outdated. Um, it's probably copy and pasted from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and that's, that's another problem that we have to do with content well, and training. Totally. Well, a quick, fascinating story, right? I was part of a group, um, at a university where they're developing a certificate program and it was like an eight week thing. And the whole point was, you know, equip skill for somebody to get interested. So we, we look at the layout of this thing. We, we all go, yeah, okay. The flow looks nice and the topics are good. And somebody at the school asked the question said, okay, if, if somebody went through that program, would you hire them? And it was crickets on the other end, right? Everybody's going, uh, well, probably not. And, and, and so then I think I came back and said, then we need to redesign the program, right? <laughs> like 100%. the whole point is to get people to work into jobs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, and, and that leads me, that leads me to my next point. And this is the point that, that upsets me, not as upsets me, but it's a point that, that I've dealt with when I'm, when I'm talking to some of these students, they do hit me up. I do get messages on LinkedIn. Because, you know, on Netflix, they'll see a documentary and they mentioned me as a guy from the projects, from the hood. And, yes. okay, he's relatable. Let me, let me send him a message or something, right? And um, and so, you know, we're having a conversation. It's always the same. Hey, you know, I, I just came out of school. I'm studying for the OSCP. I don't have it yet because I can't afford it. That's, a, that's right. another problem, okay? I want to get into pen testing, Hector, but what are my next steps? Okay, cool. So we get past all of that. Now, the the, the next problem is, okay... They, they're studying for the OSCP. They came out of school. Um, they took out loans for that program. Now they're broke. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say this, and I'm, I'm sorry to put the industry on blast, but it's almost impossible to get them hired, even on the internship level, even on the entry level. You know, the, the, you, know you go on LinkedIn jobs and you type in InfoSec, you see tens of thousands of jobs from, from all sorts of companies, but none of these companies are putting any sort of investment and doing in-house training for some of these folks. Right. It's what like three to five years experience <laughs> required or some nonsense. They need three <laughs> to five. They need, oh, but that's, that's the crazy part. And some of, yeah. some of these requirements are insane and make no sense. I'll give you a good, good example. Yep. They want a junior analyst and the prerequisite is a CISSP. Wait, yep. that's that, that has no relation to each other. Right. 
like someone with a CISSP is not going to hire on as a junior analyst. And, and certainly not at what the salary is being offered at. For no. <laughs> and, and, and plus, that certification for someone that's more in the management side of things. Yeah. You're looking for a junior analyst to start doing um, incident response or SOC or, or even junior pen testing, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, these are two completely unrelated fields, and I think that there is a lot of problems in the industry itself or these organizations that are trying to hire and have no idea what it is they're hiring for. Right. So now how do you deal with that problem? Unfortunately, it's probably going to take money or it's going to take people like myself and Rob and Chris and Colin and all of us to take free time to build out free content or we do like, you know, these podcast events or we do something where we could share that content with these students and help guide them. Because the reality is we could sit here and say, well, the cybersecurity industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and there's tons of jobs available, but none of these jobs are hiring. Right. They're not hiring. Um, and it, it's a major problem. So now it, you know, and it all ties into this general, uh, you know, theme of the conversation of this podcast today, which is how do we deal with Log4J? How do we deal yeah. with XSS and password management? Yep. Well, it requires education, it requires training. It requires our developers have this, that, and the other knowledge of basic cybersecurity principles. But here's the but. These companies are expecting these folks to come into these jobs with that knowledge already. And the reality is that knowledge is not there. They're not getting it in school. So right. where are they going to get it from? It's, right. it's a... Yeah. Yeah, you know, in between the new features and the bugs and the other stuff that you have to do as part of your day-to-day. -day. Well, now, let, now let's look at our allies, India, right? We're, we're fortunate. We're fortunate that we have a solid relationship with India because India has put money into training the next generation of security practitioners and systems administrators and developers. The mm -hmm. Indian government is doing that. We're not doing that, right? And if we are, is that such a small scale that it's not even impactful? Yeah, no, in fact, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a congressional initiative. Um, I, think the, I think it's Senate Bill 438, if I remember right, but it has been sitting in committee for almost a year. So it's this <laughs> national apprenticeship internship um, bill that would provide, you know, billions of dollars towards these kinds of things, right? 21st century industries, cyber being one of them. And it made its way through the House really quick, and it has been sitting in the Senate for forever. Um, and so that that just says it tells you where the priority is and, and things like that. You know, what I'd love to see in this space is a place where people can fail safely, you know, and learn. Because that's how we all learned. And you guys remember we had Matt Krauss on, um, you know, in season two talking about this a little bit. And Matt, you know, is a CISO and was saying you know, when we did all this, right, we, we kind of figured it out, we blazed the trail and we didn't leave any breadcrumbs behind. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they learned by doing, and, and that's how students seem to learn. And so creating those safe spaces to, you know, oh, oops, I, I, you know, created an exploit and I allowed a breach to happen, but do it in a safe manner where lives aren't on the line or people's data isn't being stolen. And like getting some of that is where, that theoretical classroom learning suddenly lines up with the real world. And now all of a sudden I have skill that I can use on day one. So. Yeah, that's, that's, um, those are all great points. And I'll be honest with you. Like I want, I, I wish I could do more. I don't know what to do more. Right. Cause yeah. I do not have the funding exactly. to be able to, to dedicate time to create like a, like a, a, an entire syllabus, right. Uh, or create a whole bunch of content that I could de deliver to students. The thing is that even if we do create something like that, Rob, Chris, and Colin, um, how are we going to get it to the students? In most cases, yeah. students won't even know that it exists, right? Um, I'm thankful. I'm very thankful for content creators like Ipsec, if you guys don't know who that is, um, Live Overflow. Um, these guys are doing some really amazing free YouTube content um, dedicated around cybersecurity and pen testing and and identifying vulnerabilities and exploiting vulnerabilities. But even then, even though those guys have hundreds of thousands of viewers, there's still millions of other people that don't even know those guys exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have we have a, a major issue amongst many issues in our country. But I'm hopeful that uh, at some point, somehow, you know, even if Colin, if you got a great idea on how we could do this, any one of us, you know, we could brainstorm on how we could distribute this information. Um, or get some sort of funding. You know, if if the government decides, hey, 
we could put a couple couple of dollars aside to um to to you know get some training going from from Rob for example and have Rob do a couple of courses. Um, that would be dope, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be dope. I'm I'm gonna borrow that. That's our soundbite for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be. I, I mean, we love those kinds of things. It's that's that's exactly. Um, you know, there's people out there who are, are kind of doing it, but it's the same problem you have. It's it's not very well organized. It's not very well funded, and it's you know volunteer basis. And so, yeah, it's. I mean, it's great to see it, um, but you'd love to see a little bit more formality around it too. So, oh yeah, but this this one point I want to make to Colin. So Colin, um, so uh, so there was a point when I wanted to get into cybersecurity early on. This is the early 2000s, mm-hmm. right? When I first hit 18, I had a whole bunch of skills and experience. Unfortunately, it was because I was a black hat. Okay. Mm. In those days, in order in order for you to learn security, you kind of had to do it, right? You had to, in order for me to study <clears throat> Solaris and learn how to use Unix, for example, I had to hack into a Unix server and 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 become an administrator that way. In fact, my first job was as a as a Linux systems administrator. And I only got those skills because I was hacking into Linux systems and learning how to administer them. Now <clears throat> that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to give advice to, to start hacking everything and, and that's going to start your career. No, <laughs> no, that won't end well for a lot of people. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is that there's a major difference that back then we didn't have hack the boxes and we didn't have CTFs no. and we didn't have the cloud, right? Quote unquote cloud with AWS. We could sign up for free and launch an EC2. Google, for example, gives you a free VM instance. You didn't have VirtualBox or VMware hypervisor of readily available for free. Now is different. In 2022, you can deploy all of that. You can participate in, in hacking events. You can learn by doing. Um, and in those days, you know, I remember trying to do interviews with security companies that existed, and they would not even acknowledge my existence because Ooh. it was very, it was very tight knit. Like you said, it was very sneaky. It was very secret squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially for a person of color, I remember I did an interview face to face with a Russian security company and I couldn't, I don't understand Russian, so I can't tell you exactly what they said, but I know one <laughs> of the guys immediately started talking to his partner and I was like, okay, this is a bad, this is bad, but they gave me a job. Okay. They gave me a job because I offered to work the first two weeks for free. I said, look, give me a chance. Yeah. Give me a chance. Give me an opportunity to show you that I have the skills and experience, right? My my appearance may not match my skill set, so let me show you my skill set, okay? And they they allowed me to work, and you know they gave me a job. It was very entry level. I think it was like fifty grand. You know that was the initial offer, and then by the end of the quarter, I was up to eighty and ninety and a hundred thousand. That was my first major job where I broke the six figures. But it's because I showed them my experience and my skill set. Um, but if I did not have that experience and skill set, I just came out of college with a 2005 cybersecurity, you know, degree. Okay, more than likely that that would have never happened. So um, I think that going back to your original question, how has the industry changed? It has changed at least in that part where it's easier for people to get involved in the industry, but it's still very difficult, right? It's slightly easier. Yeah, I did look. Look, I, I, I don't doubt that a, a lot of things in specifically how I ended up in in cybersecurity was just per chance. You know, um, I was a developer who got given an mm. opportunity. Um, but you know, I'm I'm based in Ireland, so things things are a bit different as well. We were very much an outsourced um, option, I guess, for the company I was working for. Let's outsource our cybersecurity. Let's let's build something. Um, and and we literally did have the opportunity to take people and skill them up from nothing because there was no skills around. So, sure. you know, um, I think it I think it varies, but but I do welcome. You know, I'm very open to diversity in in all sorts of things. I I firmly believe our industry doesn't have enough women in it, for example. You know, and agree. And yeah, and yeah. you know, so it's it, there's there's a whole lot of things. We we spent a lot of time last year talking to you know, a number of high profile um, women in, in our industry, you know, to, to pick their brains on, on how we can do better at that, you know? So no, I, I, I do welcome that, that, that sort of viewpoint, I think is very important. Well, th- there's one thing that you said that I really appreciated, which is 
taking folks in-house and training them up. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think a lot of organizations, especially those that you see on you know LinkedIn jobs, for example, I, like I said, if you type in cybersecurity or cyber or infosec, you'll find tens of thousands of jobs open. And my question for, the, for those organizations would be, well, have you considered you know, opening up entry-level positions and training folks up to the positions that you want? It'll probably be cheaper for you. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but it'll probably be more effective than trying to go out there and land someone um, for, you know, an intermediate level job where you have to pay them six figures and because mm-hmm. of, of, of supply and demand and competition, where you have to pay them some ridiculous amount just to get that person in, when you could train a whole entire classroom full of, you know, students that are eager to learn and want to work. I mean, it, it's a great conversation, and I would love to have this conversation. Yeah, and, I don't, it, and, it, yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't just stop at um it doesn't just stop at cybersecurity. I think it goes to to developers as well. I mean, I you know I, we we constantly within our organization fight to say, well, look, can we get some graduates and can we work them through the system rather than mm-hmm. looking for that advanced developer that we we just can't get you know in wherever that might be. So it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's I think it's a problem with with where industry is at the minute that we we've forgotten about how like i i got my first job because i was a graduate you know you know it's it's really really hard for people to to do that these days you know it's in that um in that vein i'm curious about your opinion on one thing um we we, we do want a world where everybody can learn what they need to learn probably in some kind of higher learning environment for security and all that a little more focus there and and all that happy stuff what you're talking about Uh, but one of the things i've noticed is Businesses tend to look at ROI to see whether or not the investment is worth it, if you will. Mm. And it's kind of hard to put a number on security ROI because what is it? It protects your reputation. It stops you from possibly losing millions of dollars 10 years from now. Who knows? So what are some of the things that you use to, to go to them and say, look, it, we need to do a product recall on the steering wheel or we can let it go and 10 people will die and we'll just get sued and be OK with it. What, what are some of the things that you try to use to convince CEOs or CISOs or some of your, your clients out there that look at you need to spend some money in this area because reasons and what are those reasons? Yeah, and that's that's a fantastic question, because, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a trend the trend is, I, th- I think it's mostly dead now, but we had a trend right before ransomware really, really popped off, which is companies were just signing up for cyber insurance because they were getting policies left and right. And they were using cyber insurance kind of as a backup plan. Like, eh, we don't really need to invest that much in, in our cyber program because, you know, in the event we get compromised, don't worry, we have a policy in place. It's going to pay out and we'll just deal with it. Um, and, you know, if it's a brand hit, you know, we'll figure that out. We'll hire a PR organization or something. But cyber insurance for a while, several years ago, was making a lot of companies and organizations and CISOs and boards complacent or or, or, or passive in, in the security programs. Now, not so much because mm-hmm. cyber or rather ransomware groups found a way to automate um, and, you know, create, uh, you know, uh, 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 a, a much easier way to compromise networks and ransom them. And cyber insurance companies, instead of dealing with policies or dealing with whatever they needed to deal with with the client, they just started paying out to a point where in 2022, we're in a place, and I'm sure you guys can do some research if you haven't yet, cyber insurance policy providers or, or insurance companies are actually not accepting a lot of policies. They are rejecting policies. They do not want clients because of ransomware. Right. Ransomware yeah, has pre-existing re- conditions. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. Gosh, I didn't know about that. Like, that's oh, wild. absolutely. And I, I had a really good, like, two-hour-long conversation with a very fantastic lady. And I'm hoping that um, at some point I'll make an introduction to you guys because she is um, she is the person who basically built the cyber insurance policy for her company. I'm not going to mention the company yet. Um, so she was there from, from before ransomware Ooh. popped off. And she was there when cyber insurance was a, a you know a, a theoretical thing, um, and then it, it became deployed, it became active, and I learned so much from that two-hour call from the perspective of the uh, the cyber insurance policy companies to a point that it, it really made me scared. It mm-hmm. scared me because even if a cyber insurance company policy provider or whatever um, an insurance company decides to give you a policy today. It's as easy as being an insider threat to get a payout. 
right? You, the yeah. insider insider threats will it. pay yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't even need to get ransomed to 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 really abuse that policy. Okay. You could be just a rogue administrator, um, <laughs> and you could compromise the network. You could shut it down. You could get some sort of ransom in, in, in Ethereum or Bitcoin, and enjoy the rest of your life in in Russia and and move <laughs> on with your life, right? Um, but anyways, so how do we deal with this problem? How do we go about it? The reality is that I, I don't really know if anyone has any answers to that question, right? And going back to your question, uh, Chris, more specifically, um, you know, ROI is extremely important, and I totally get that point, right? That's that's uh, unfortunately it's beyond my scope because that's not my that's not the part of the business I'm in. But I understand the arguments and I understand the points. Is it worth it to invest in the cybersecurity program? Is it worth it to get a policy or do this or hire people or do in-house training? Um, personally, you know, obviously for me and from my perspective, yes. For the company, I'm not sure, right? From from the company's perspective, depending on who we're talking about, they care more about ROI than anything else. I think, I think in the long term, doing in-house training and bringing these students right out of college that have some sort of awareness and have some sort of perspective into the basics of cybersecurity, um, and then training them up through some sort of modules system would be sufficient and would, would really work out in the long term. It would probably be expensive in the beginning, okay? But then again, I've never run a program like that. I have no idea what the numbers look like. But I would think that it would be, it would be uh, more cost-effective in the long term to train your own employees and have these contracts in place. Oh, absolutely. Rather mm -hmm. than trying to find a bunch of unicorns that you're going to have to pay $200,000 plus to, to fill those roles. Right. And who are likely going to leave as soon as they've done that for a little bit of time. Yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. If, trust me, if, if they, if their resume has X, Y, and Z companies and corporations and they're doing really good and they've done a very solid job and they're already getting 200 grand and, you know, here comes SpaceX or here comes Google or here comes, you know, VMware offering them 300 plus. You think they're going to stay with you? No, oh, no, no. It's it's the New York Yankees pilfering free agents every year, right? It's the same idea. Go get the top talent because I can't. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's one thing that I've noticed out of all the discussions that we've had so far. And that is regardless of his in-house training, finding employees, dealing with the lack of, 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 of you know, workable or rather workforce here in, in the U.S., uh, for cybersecurity, I'm not sure how it is in Ireland, Colin. Yeah, um, it's the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but these all issues have some sort of pattern, and that is that we don't really have the answers for any of this yet. Right. Right. No. No, but I, I think talking about it, you know, starts to bring awareness. And that's you know, so encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but as Colin just said, I, I think it's great that we talk about these things so that we can spark conversations, spark yeah. some interest. And hopefully yeah. it's one of your listeners that's it's, it's a CISO that says, okay, you know what? Maybe we could do some in-house training or maybe we could invest a tiny portion of our budget into some sort of training modules. Maybe we could start looking at our local community uh, colleges or universities, mm -hmm. maybe start to invest some time. You know, hey, maybe we'll we'll get Hector and Rob to do you know, a quick podcast for us or an event for us, Boom. right? Whatever. Yeah. Um, the point is that it's great to have these conversations because it starts something, hopefully. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and this is so much bigger than any one organization as well. Right. So these problems are not going to get solved by one group in one company in one area. Right. These are conversations that have to span larger. And, and if we're going to attack it and really solve it, then then that's what it's going to take. Right. It's cooperation, shared learning. You know, I, I know something, you know, something together. We're so much better together. Right. That kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, if you're you're listening, you're interested in this space, reach out to us, engage with us on Twitter. Um, at Paranoia is the handle. Um, reach out to, to Hector as well. We would love to hear from you and talk more about it. Yeah, but, but Hector, I, I, unfortunately, we're probably at the end here. This has been fantastic. Really, really, really appreciate your time. Um, um, you know, it's it's fascinating discussion. Um, and I, I'm sure we could talk about a million subjects. We didn't even get to touch on <laughs> ransomware. I know we could go for hours on that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah. really, really appreciate you joining us. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen. I mean, I have to say that the the one joy that I do have, 
because as you know, cybersecurity is boring. It's probably one of the most boring things you can do in your life, um, especially when you're on the pen testing side. My God, um, but it's always a pleasure being able to sit with with folks from different perspectives, okay, um, and having these conversations and walking away with an understanding that yes, it's just not a it's just not my opinion on the offensive side. You know, there's also folks on the defensive side that feel the same, um, or there's folks that that provide software or products that feel the same um it's good to know that you know i'm just not this paranoid guy in the corner of the room like oh my god we're right i'm glad to hear that you you guys feel the same in many ways yeah um and i'm hopeful that at some point we can work together kind of figure out some solutions right Mm -hmm. Uh, even if it's another podcast episode so make the corner bigger exactly (laughs) don't worry i'll make some room for you guys over here don't worry about it Well, thank you very much, gents. Appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. We love it. Oh, sure. Cool. With that, you know, thanks. Thanks, Rob. And thanks, Chris. It's been a great episode. Great talking to Hector. Um, Very much so. Lots and lots of um, amazing insight there. I mean, I think that could have gone on for a much longer time than than we had. (laughs) Cut it out to the three-hour format and go from there. Yep. <laughs> free hour yep. podcast um but yeah thanks thanks again and we'll 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 see you next time yeah yeah always a pleasure